Good evening, everyone. My name is Michael Willis. I'm the uh, director of a Middle East Centre here at St Anthony's College at the University of Oxford, and I'm very pleased to welcome you to the second of the Middle East Centre's webinars focusing on contemporary events in the region, the second that we are holding this term. Two weeks ago, we looked at Tunisia, and this week we are moving to the other end of the region to look at recent developments in Afghanistan. Now, Afghanistan is a country we traditionally have not covered very regularly or extensively in the Middle East Centre, but one that is quite obviously has strong, both strong links to and significant influence on, on the Middle East region. And to discuss this topic, we are very pleased to have two noticed specialists on Afghanistan. We have Kate Clark. Kate is co-director and senior analyst at the Afghanistan Analyst Network, a policy research NGO based in Kabul, where she's been since 2010. Kate has been researching and writing on Afghanistan for over 20 years as a journalist, analyst and documentary maker. She was BBC correspondent in Kabul between 1999 and 2002 and was the only Western journalist based in Afghanistan during the last years of the Taliban Emirate and was in fact expelled by the Taliban in March 2001, largely for her coverage of the destruction of the statues of Buddha at Bamiyan. Kate returned to Afghanistan in November 2001 and thus has witnessed the fall of Kabul both in 2001 and very recently, of course, this last summer in 2021. Her research and publications have focused on the conflicts in Afghanistan, including militia formation and investigations into breaches of law of war, detentions and the use of torture. She has also written extensively on Afghanistan's political economy, as well as its wildlife and the environment. Kate knows the Middle East region also very well. She holds an MA in Middle Eastern politics from the University of Exeter and has lived and studied and worked across the region. Our second panelist tonight is Ibrahim Al-Marashi. Ibrahim is Associate Professor of Middle Eastern History at California State University, San Marcos, and is currently visiting professor at the IE University School of Global and Public Affairs in Madrid, Spain, from where he joins us this evening. Ibrahim obtained his doctorate here at St. Anthony's College at the University of Oxford, completing a thesis on the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait. And Ibrahim achieved quite a, a significant feat in the fact that his doctoral thesis actually became briefly, certainly nationally famous, and in fact, world famous, due to it being plagiarized by official gov officials in the UK government in the run up to the invasion of Iraq in 2003, in what those of you will remember, certainly uh, those of you based in Britain will remember as the dodgy dossier affair. Well, that was based and plagiarized from Ibrahim's thesis. Ibrahim's work is, has focused mainly on Iraq and he's published several books on Iraqi history. Over recent years, however, he has focused increasingly on Afghanistan, specifically looking about how Af we understand and can teach uh, Afghan history over the last two decades. And also, and this relates very much to us at the Middle East Centre, how the discipline of Middle East studies should relate to Afghanistan. Again, a neighbouring country to the region, sometimes regarded part of it, sometimes regarded as, as next to it, and these sort of issues about the relationship with it. Now, before I, I move to our speakers, I just wanted to say that the speakers will be speaking for 15 minutes each. Then we'll be opening up the floor to questions and discussion. Now, if you would like to pose a question to either of our speakers, please do so. You, if you see the Q&A function on Zoom, a little Q&A button, if you press that, you can type in your question and then I can pose it to the, the panelists in the question and answer session. Please feel free to put your name in. Similarly, if you prefer to remain anonymous, that's absolutely fine. And we, we won't mention your name, but either is fine. So as we go for the talk, feel free to enter them at any time. And then we'll have them at the end and we'll be able to put the questions to our panellists. OK, so we'll move to our panellists. And first speaking will be Ibrahim. Ibrahim. Thank you for that introduction, as well as organising this event that I began considering back in August after the fall of Kabul. The particular subject that I wanted to deal with is the notion of Afghanistan as the graveyard of empires. Notice I put question mark because this trope came into use in last August. And what I wanted to do was interrogate where did this trope come from? Because you might get the impression that this was something that might have been said by, let's say, a, um, 
imagine one of the Anglo-Afghan wars and a colonial officer with a pith helmet after leaving uh, Afghanistan after the second Anglo-Afghan war saying, this is the graveyard of our empire. But in fact, the uh, epitaph is it's a, it's really historiographical. It really only emerged in the journal Foreign Affairs. And if the journal Foreign Affairs has given us terms that have entered our lexicon, such as the clash of civilization, so too did it introduce the graveyard of empires. It's not a historical term. It was a term coined on the eve of the invasion of Afghanistan after 2001. But it has been used kind of reflexively, kind of an assumption that this is what the British Empire considered Afghanistan or the Soviet Union. So just uh, briefly speaking, how did I get interested in Afghanistan? And this story of my PhD research is really reflective of the state of knowledge of Afghanistan and Afghan history around prior to 9-11, I should say. So growing up in the U.S. as a child in the 80s, there was really two stories that I grew up with on the 7 o'clock news when before news was on a 24-hour news cycle. One was the Iran-Iraq war, which involved actually two ancestral homes, both Iraq and Iran. That was always in the background. And the other was the war in Afghanistan. Those were the wars in the 1980s, particularly from the region that I identified with. The Lebanese Civil War had started in 1975, more or less was no longer newsworthy by the 80s. And really, after my college education, when I was trying to choose a PhD subject, it was either going to be the Iran-Iraq War or the war in Afghanistan. Both would prove to be difficult to do when I was considering doing a PhD in the U.S., because in terms of Afghan scholars who worked on Afghanistan, so we're talking about the very late, late 90s, right before 2001, there was one political scientist the entire of the U.S. worked in Afghanistan, and one anthropologist, and another political scientist who was really in the policy circles, but really primarily focused on Pakistan, and who told me doing a PhD on Afghanistan in the U.S. would be impossible. That gives you kind of a state of the knowledge of Afghanistan. And keep in mind also, Middle East studies didn't really touch it. South Asia studies really considered Afghanistan as an appendage. This was the reflection of the state of knowledge of Afghanistan in the U.S. And I would argue it also in terms of the U.S. State Department, you had this kind of mirroring effect where the knowledge of Afghanistan was quite, uh, well, look, the, the same went for Iraq. Iraqi history, there, there was really no one in the U.S. working and in the late 90s working on Iraqi history. And it says a lot prior to 2001 and 2003, the dearth of knowledge, at least in academic circles on both Iraq and Afghanistan. And of course, in the introduction, you know how the story ended. I, I ended up going to the Middle East Center of Oxford to do a history of the Iran-Iraq War, which later became a history of the Gulf War. 1991. So that's on one level talking about the kind of the state of knowledge on both countries, but here we're going to be focusing on Afghanistan prior to the war in Afghanistan. Now, finally, to interrogate the graveyard of empires, I told you the context in which the term emerged. And just like the clash of civilizations, often history is needed to more or less deconstruct these terms that have so much been in our lexicon. Let's think of this term that emerged on the eve of the invasion of Afghanistan, and let's look at the historical record. So where does Afghanistan and the Persian Empire begin or end? I would argue it's an artificial, arbitrary distinction. It's more or less a continuum. And not only the origins of Zoroastrianism could most likely be traced to somewhere in Afghanistan. And of course, becoming the uh, official, uh, well, the state religion of uh, various Persian empires. Afghanistan was not the graveyard for Alexander the Great. In fact, he left a legacy as uh, the city of Kandahar would have been one of the Alexandrias that were left during uh, Alexander's career. So not only was it not the graveyard of Alexander the Great, the Macedonian uh, Hellenic project, but what you saw was kind of a hybridity, a flourishing of the local country, uh, cultures as well as Hellenic cultures. Jump to the early Muslim empire under the uh, caliphs, and then in the early phase of the Umayyad empire. 
empire. Not only neither was Afghanistan the graveyard of that empire, but of course, the adoption of Islam in this area is relevant to this very day. Jump to the 1500s, the era known as the Gunpowder Empire. In other words, the notion of the graveyard of empires is Afghanistan is an area that's acted upon. It sucks in potential imperial aspirants, and then ultimately more or less entraps them in a quagmire. If we jump to the 1500s, the Mughal Empire actually began in Kabul. In other words, Afghanistan, or what we could call Afghanistan in this case, is the birthplace of empires, if you will. And rather than being a graveyard of empires, Afghans were responsible also, particularly the Vilzai of the Pashtun tribes, for bringing the collapse of an empire, not necessarily it being invaded, but them invading, and that was the Safavid Empire. And I just have this screenshot of uh, the Mughal Empire to remind us, in other words, Afghanistan could, we don't think of it as the font of a kind of civilizational uh, entity, but uh, this is what this lecture is trying to remind us of. And then finally, when we get to the British experience in Afghanistan, here we could find something similar in terms of the British experience, which was really a reflection or an outcome of preventing Russian expansion towards interest in the Mughal Empire, otherwise known by another trope, the Great Game. The graveyard of empires was used to, or is used to describe the British experience in Afghanistan, the Soviet experience, and the American experience. But what I've been trying to do was delineate what is the difference between Afghanistan being part of empires in the past and the British imperial, the Soviet imperial, and the American imperial project. And what all three have in common was, of course, those three entities that I mentioned were more or less what you consider Western, trying to impose a certain their own interests without any kind of consideration of local culture no attempts at hybridity. And of course, in those cases, those foreign attempts of um, imposition of their cultures, whether it was uh, their imperial culture, I should say, British, Soviet, or American, ultimately were undone in Afghanistan. In other words, rather than being a, a graveyard, is more or less a site of imperial, Western, I should say, Western imperial hubris. And I, I think that is the distinction that has to be made when looking at the broad span of Afghan history. So now let's situate the history of Afghanistan very briefly in the Cold War. And here I show images of the streets of Prague in 1968. Uh, during any episode of the Cold War, when there was a communist regime that seemed to resist the control of Moscow, more or less the solution was to send in the tanks, whether it was Hungary 1956, uh, Prague 1968, or Kabul late 1979. Usually the deployment of the Soviet military was enough to change the government and ensure the rule of a pliant communist regime. So in other words, whether it was Hungary, Prague, or Kabul, it was Kabul where we saw the failure. So here we have the images of the Soviet tanks going into Kabul in uh, 1979 and 1980. And this is bringing me now with the Soviet invasion. I prefer this map where we kind of reimagine the Middle East as Southwest Asia, because in a map like this, we can appreciate Afghanistan's position with the region. So in other words, I've situated the history of Afghanistan with an empire, I've briefly discussed Afghanistan's history during the Cold War. Now, if I could situate Afghanistan with the 1980s and the Middle East, and then take it to the present and then leave it off where uh, Kate will uh, continue this narrative. It's this, when we look at Afghanistan in the 1980s, I, I would say Afghanistan is related to the Middle East, or if we could use this term, just Southwest Asia, then we could see it as one continuum, one geographical continuum. What does Afghanistan represent? First of all, vis-a-vis -vis the Arab world. I would say the 1980s represented the failure of various Arab regimes to deal with their political Islamist movements. 
Afghanistan, if we look at whether Ayman al-Zawahri, Osama bin Laden, the various uh, foreign volunteers who would have come from Algeria, Yemen, uh, Syria, in each and every single one of these states, there was the, the uh, failure of the various Afghan fighters to see a role of political Islam within their various home countries that resulted in them finding refuge in Afghanistan and implementing their vision in Afghanistan. So on one level, that's uh, it's, it's a reflection of the history of political Islamism in the 80s. On the second level then is ideational in the kind of Islamist imaginary where the political Islamist project succeeded, where it was a transnational political Islamist project in Afghanistan, and according to the Islamist imaginary, on an ideational level, that brought the collapse of the Soviet Union as of 1989. Then the next level I would connect it to is then during the 1980s, continuing to, um, I would say to some levels to the various presidents, Afghanistan as a site of a proxy conflict between Iran and Saudi Arabia, which I, I would argue goes back to the 1980s. And during this proxy conflict, and also to some extent it existed in neighboring Pakistan, which is also why I'm kind of keen on taking South Asia and also including it into an entity called Southwest Asia, where they're not necessarily mutually exclusive. Particularly in Afghanistan, this led to various forms of Arab Islam taking root. There was one Mujahideen fact and that of uh, Abdul Rasul Sayyaf that was uh, ostensibly Wahhabi. And we could say the forms of Islam practiced by ISIS, I wouldn't say are inherently Afghan in character. The Deobandi Islam, we could say, had the South Asian context. But the various forms of Islam that took root in Afghanistan, I would argue, took, uh, had their origins in the Arab world. And then finally, the fourth level is one of a human security framework that unites Afghanistan with the rest of what we call the Middle East. And what I'm talking about a human security is the following. Those kind of liminal peoples as a result of this conflict, I shouldn't say liminals, but precarious, those in a precarious situation, those vulnerable, I'm particularly talking about refugees. We've seen refugees in Pakistan who were, of course, introduced to various forms of Islam that usually came from Saudi Arabia, but I'm also talking about refugees in Iran that would later be used as uh, fighters in the Syrian civil war. It's this uh, how the displaced end up being part of Middle Eastern politics, particularly the case of the brigades recruited from the Hazara minority of Afghanistan that found themselves as forming battalions in the Syrian civil war. So those are the various ways I would connect, situate Afghanistan in the greater history of the Middle East. And then finally, to start to conclude just two primary sources, again, going back to the history of situating Afghanistan's history during the Cold War and looking at resonance with the present. And this is the various language and I've I underlined the key points, various language that you would find coming familiar coming from Biden's White House. The attempts to not portray, if you look at this document from 1987 or 1989, notice uh, the emphasis on language. This is not a withdrawal. Uh, this is not, sorry, a route or a flight. Look at it in 1987, the emphasis on this is a withdrawal that we've planned. And then again, two years later, if you look at sentence number three, this is withdrawal, not a flight. And again, now look at sentence number one. And here we come to the historical tropes that we use. Back in sentence number one that I took from this primary source, this is not analogous to the situation in Vietnam as uttered by this official in 1989. And again, in August, what did we see? The repeated emphasis, this is not Saigon 1975. And then finally, to conclude with an image and two maps, uh, this image says it all in terms of the Soviet invasion was really a project that allowed the communist government of Afghanistan to control the roads and the urban city centers of Afghanistan. When the Soviets withdrew, what we see is the next phase of Afghan history. The Afghan government was able to control the roads, the various urban centers. 
But the next phase would be this civil war. And within the civil war, I'm setting up Kate's presentation. If you look at the various Mujahideen factions, here we have Afghanistan ripe for a economic system. We rarely call it as such, uh, warlordism. The control for fiefs and mini economies that will set up Afghanistan's instability during the 1990s. And if I show you this image, and then finally this image that came from the American slash NATO experience in Afghanistan, again, you see a similar dynamic. The blue represents the various cities that were controlled by the ISAF forces, as well as the roads. But if you see the story here of kind of where the Taliban was operating or the various areas here, you have, again, a reflection of what connected the Soviet and the American experience. Controlling the urban centers and the roads was easy enough if you had superior military power. The mountains provided harder geographical locations for either superpower to secure Afghanistan. And within that context, that's where I would want to conclude. Not really Afghanistan as a graveyard of empires, but Afghanistan as an area that Administration is difficult and will ultimately fail when the project is imposed from the top down, when the project attempts to be centralized. And that's the story, I think, of the Soviet and the American experience, to create a centralized government in both cases where the history of this particular area has always been one of decentralization. So I'll conclude there. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ibrahim, for giving us a, a very interesting and very comprehensive and very short space of time outlook on Afghan history, particularly how it's been misunderstood in the past. And thank you particularly also for linking, showing all the ways that it links into the Middle East. I have to admit, I, I thought the Graveyard of Empires quote was, again, similarly from some 19th century British official. So that was very interesting to know that a lot of these things we sometimes think of long history are actually of recent inventions that's a, a feature in history. But thank you. Now turn to Kate, Kate Clark. So, uh, yeah, I'm reminded of the, the joke that Afghans say that their country is not a graveyard of, of empires, it's a graveyard of Afghans. And we've seen an awful lot of dead Afghans over the last 40 years as various countries and groups have fought over it. So, as I have, I've been doing a lot of these briefings. I do quite a lot of them anyway, but particularly since obviously the fall of Kabul, there's been a renewed interest in Afghanistan. And I thought I would take the opportunity to speak to a, an audience of Middle Eastern people or, or people interested in the Middle East to take a slightly straight, you know, a different look at Afghanistan, which is to look at it as a, a rentier state, which is, of course, is one of the, you know, the classic theories for looking at the Middle East and the oil producers in particular. And of course, one of the other ways in which my, my talk will, will fit into Ibrahim's, it's been a rentier state since it's basically since it was formed as a modern state in the late 19th century by Amir Abdurrahman Khan. How did he consolidate the modern state? Using British subsidies. So he, uh, you know, he announced a jihad and conquered the Hazara Shias in the center of the country. He forcibly converted the people who had been living in Kafiristan, it was renamed Nuristan. Some really horrible things happened with the, with the use of British subsidies. That was really when Afghanistan became a rentier state and it has not stopped ever since. Through the Cold War, the USSR and the US vied for control through the, the, the wars of the 1980s and 90s. And of course, also after 2001. And the, I think one of the key things is that why would anyone bother with Afghanistan? It's isolated, it's poor, it doesn't really have natural resources. The key thing is everyone has always wanted no one else to control it. So British India didn't want Tsarist Russia to control Afghanistan, the USSR and the US. And since 2001, of course, it's, it was the America, America and its allies didn't want Taliban and Al-Qaeda to control Afghanistan. Afghanistan has been a rentier state for generations, but since 2001, it's been a rentier state on steroids. I mean, the amount of money coming into the country since the invasion is eye-watering, not just aid, though that's been a lot, but also the money that was given to, for, to the army and the police, and especially the money that was spent by the military, the various foreign armies that were based in Afghanistan. 
billions, billions of dollars. And it's it's had the same sort of effects that you would expect in a classic frontier state. There's the sort of financial autonomy of the elites. They don't answer this for the people. They answer, if at all, to the donors. I mean, up until August the 15th, 2021. No taxation without representation, actually very little taxation in Afghanistan. And calls for representation have been very weak. We've had these sort of sham parliaments, sham elections weakening of the domestic economy. We end up in 2021 with Afghanistan importing six times as much as it exports. And that the, the difference is covered by eight, and it's important ex imports, medicine, food, oil, gas, and staple food. So it has all those sort of, what you would say is a sort of classic, classic frontier characteristics, corruption, nepotism, the importance of a vertical political organization rather than horizontal. But then it's also very different from, you think about Iraq under Saddam or Libya under Gaddafi. You don't see the consolidation of the state. We saw it with Abdurrahman Khan in the late 19th century. We don't see it with the post 2001 state. And it's strange. Why is that the case? And I think you can look at where the rent went, not to one party or to one, one leader, but to a multiplicity of actors. So the Americans got rid of, of the Taliban and this sort of slew of commanders and factions grabbed control. It was commanders who were the new district governors, provincial governors, generals, corps commanders, ministers, you name it, pretty well. Most people apart from, there was a few exceptions, Hamid Karzai was one, Ashraf Ghani was another. If you look at the first cabinet, four fifths were either military men or civilian members of armed factions. And they absolutely use the state as spoils. They divvied out, the, divvied out the, the positions. Look at the first hundred generals, 90 were from one ethnic group, belonged to the same as, as uh, General Fahim, who was the defense minister, mainly from his, his faction. And that faction controlled Kabul, it controlled defense, intelligence, foreign affairs, police. You know, it was a real, real grab of power and of course with the Americans and others giving all this rent to Afghanistan they absolutely consolidated those men's power so largely military and they became they, they sort of most of them moved out of the political arena but they continued to be a mainstay of where political power stayed in Afghanistan and there was a sort of this parallel state it was called a sort of kitchen cabinet under Karzai Ghani the, the later president Ashraf Ghani he created various commissions that he that had more power than the ministries in some respects. So what happens? You do have a reduction in the rent with the international forces mainly living in 2014. You do have a more tax coming in. The state does gather more tax under Ashraf Ghani. But this year, the rent still amounted to 43% of GDP, 43% of GDP, 75% of public funding, 50% of the government funding, of the government's budget. Even the, you know, the Taliban, it funds, sorry, it funds the education, it funds schools, women's groups, they're rentier groups, civil society groups, they're rentier groups, largely, with some honourable exceptions, they are funded by the donors. The Taliban are funded basically by the donors. I mean, this is especially the case when the Americans had their surge, when they had 100,000 troops on the ground and Barack Obama was trying to force the Taliban to the, to the negotiating table, even though at that point they probably would have gone voluntarily. You know, the Taliban were taking 10% of, an estimated 10% of the, of the logistics bill that the American army were, fun, were paying to get supplies to their bases, 10%. And even in the last few, few years, we've been doing research in my organization, looking at what it's like to live under the Taliban. We looked at service delivery in the areas controlled by the Taliban. The Taliban were taxing effectively. A lot of that money came ultimately from, from rent, but they didn't spend, they didn't spend on education or you know, schools or health. They ran no services. All those continue to be run by NGOs, by the government and ultimately largely paid for by donors. So what happens? What happens on the 15th of August is the Taliban, they've decided to go for a military victory. They had this, you know, political negotiations, a, a deal on the table that 
the Americans are negotiating the, the, the Ghani government were particularly happy with, but there was a negotiated program. A ceasefire was on was offered, but no, they went for military victory and they succeeded. A disaster, an absolute disaster. They killed the goose that had been laying the golden eggs. Because not only, you know, Western donors don't really like governments that come to power by force. They particularly don't like governments coming to power who they've been fighting for many years, and especially ones that are, they've got sanctions on. So both UN and, U, and particularly US are very, very tricky to avoid. So overnight, the rent went. Aid cut, largely cut. And that was funding civil servants, you know, hundreds of thousands of civil servants' salaries, education, schooling, agricultural inputs infrastructure projects, you name it, and all the services that are then paid for by those, those people, those salaried people. The reserves are frozen. They're largely in America, also in Germany and UK, they're frozen. The World Bank funds are frozen. There's a dearth of dollars in the country and of Afghanis, that's the local currency because they were printed outside. The Taliban arrive, they're trying to divvy up the spoils, but there isn't much. There really isn't much. And there's been quite a lot of complaints from fighters about how, you know, it was much fighter, it was much more fun during the jihad. What we have, we have paralysis in Washington. You know, their lovely project has failed. And the and the way that Biden timed it with the withdrawal about to end, you know, before nine, the anniversary of 9-11, it meant that on the 20th anniversary of 9-11, their enemies were in charge. They'd lost a state within a few months. And, and America is the big player in Afghanistan. It's a may, it was the major donor. It's the major player on the World Bank to determine what the World Bank does. And US sanctions are particularly devastating because the international banks don't want to go against the, the US when it comes to transactions. So commercial transactions are out. The US Treasury did make some waivers to allow humanitarian and other urgent needs to go to Afghanistan. It's really, really difficult because it, it's actually very difficult to actually get money into the country. People wanting to send money home or people like me have got friends who are now really struggling. Getting reparations or, or finance, you know, finances to people into the country is really difficult. One in 20 households in Afghanistan have enough to eat and the country is on the verge of famine. So we're talking about over half of the country this winter, always a lean, hungry time are either in crisis or emergency mode. And this is because you've got, you've had a really bad drought and that's a global warming problem. Plus the fighting, really intensive fighting earlier in the year, plus the pandemic, and then this, you know, this lack of aid. So you've got rural poverty and you've got urban poverty, really, really brutal. The healthcare system's collapsed almost, schooling is tricky. Uh, so, you know, the donors are, are left, uh, no leadership from, from America. The donors are very, very, they don't really know what to do because they don't want Afghans to starve to death, but they don't want to work with the Taliban. You know, the easy political option has been humanitarian aid because it's apolitical, but actually delivering it's difficult. And it's a drop in the ocean compared to the rent that Afghanistan was getting. It does not cover what Afghanistan has lost. So even though, thank the Lord, the war is over, and that's of course, you know, the war is over, we've got first real peace for 20 years. There were a number of years where, where there was peace at the start of the American intervention, but otherwise it's the first time for 40 years. And that's wonderful. It, it has marginal economic interests for you know, people who couldn't get into their fields this year to irrigate, to water, to harvest, to get the food, to, to get crops to market, for example, but it doesn't make up for these huge calamitous economic losses. And the Taliban have not been able to, and they're so concerned with internal cohesion, with keeping themselves together, with rewarding their, their followers, that they have not been able to make the concessions that could have made it easier for the Western donors to carry on funding, keep the schools open for girls, allow women to work, don't carry out reprisal killings have some sort of inclusive government. At the moment, we've got a government that's pretty well, well, it's all male. It's largely Pashtun, which is one of many ethnic groups, mainly from the South, pretty well all madrasa educated and very little thought to trying to match, you know, the minister's experience 
with his ministry. Um, we saw the same in, in 2001, it's not new in Afghanistan. And actually the reprisal killings there were far, far worse, there were massacres. But it doesn't help Afghanistan in the current situation. And it's difficult to imagine at the moment that Afghanistan won't become again, one of the poorest countries in the world with an eviscerated middle class, a poverty stricken middle class. And a lot of the things that have been great about the last 20 years, girls going to school, boys going to school, education, educational opportunities up to the further education or higher education, better press, institutional knowledge in things like how to run a modern economy. It's very fragile and it could well be lost in the next few months. So I'm just going to tell one joke, Michael, and then I'll pass it on to you. And it's a day, it's one that I, I have to credit uh, Michael Semple, who's a professor at Queen's University, Belfast. He claims it comes from the 1990s, but I'm not entirely sure he didn't come up with it recently. So it, it involves Mullah Omar, who was the found, one of the founders of the Taliban, and he was the, the first leader, the supreme leader, Amir al-Mu'mineen. And he's with his, his advisors, and, he, and there's, he asks them, so is Afghanistan one of the richest countries in the world? And they say, oh no, Mullah Saab, Mullah Sir, Mullah Saab, we're one of the poorest. And he says, well, why is that? And they say, we don't really know. And he says, well, what are the richest countries? And they said, well, it's Germany and Japan. So how did they become rich? Well, they picked a fight with America. They lost and America funded them and they became richer than you could ever imagine. So he strikes his beard. So he says, so, so we should pick a fight with America. And they say, oh, Mullah you are the wisest leader ever. And he says, yeah, but there's just one problem. What happens if we win? Thank you very much, Kate. It's it's not a, it's it's rather unusual to have a seminar in Afghanistan and you have us laughing, but uh, some of those perhaps given how quite depressing some of the things that have happened there, having smile about that. But that that is a, a rather particular take on it. But thank you very much for that. And I'm, I'm Michael. And if you've hung out with Afghans, you will know that like <laughs> Iraqis and Syrians. They specialize in it because of the horrors. So uh, I'm not making light of the situation. It's no, just... no, it is. I mean, I, as you know, I work on Algeria and there was an enormous boom in jokes about during the civil war in the 1990s. It's part of how people, the mechanisms of people cope. Yeah. But thank and you I very much for Iraqi jokes as well. Yes. After, <laughs> yes. after 1991, actually. There's a project to be done on that, I think. So anybody wants to write a thesis on that, I think that'd be fascinating. Thank you, Kate. And particularly really interesting to look at as a rentier state. Nobody really thinks of Afghanistan in those terms, but for all the reasons you set out, as you said, one, one completely on steroids. And where we move on from that is going to be very interesting. Okay, well, thank you to you both. We now move into the question and answer session. I'd like to begin myself with a question mainly aimed at, at Kate, but also if Ibrahim wants to weigh in on this, was to what extent do you think the Taliban understood this rentier state and that they would have problems? In other words, what happens if you win? Is there any sort of sense of what their political economy or even economy would look like? And are there any hints from their first period in power in the late 90s or early 2000s? Or is that just such a different situation that they're, they're, there's going to be no parallels and no lessons to be drawn there? I'm convinced they didn't know because um, they were told repeatedly by the Americans and others I mean, someone I know who was who was at Doha said, you know, if you go for military victory, you will be like North Korea. You will be really isolated. I, I just don't think they understood the scale of the money coming into the country. And I think actually probably Afghans didn't understand it either. They didn't ask why their schooling was free or why education, why health clinics were free when they weren't really paying taxes. And there, there wasn't this connection at all. I think it's been a huge shock to them. And they expected the treasury to be fuller and they're really annoyed that you know they can't get their hands on the on the reserves or they, they you know the, the, the they keep they're actually in a honeymoon period at the moment with the donors they're trying to persuade everyone that they're they're nice and you know they should all come back and actually access is much better to put you know to the difficult areas of the country obviously because there's not a war going on and the taliban aren't trying to kidnap foreigners for ransom so in that sense it's a bit easier they mm, they haven't made any any concessions or confidence building measures, they may well be doing a bit somehow. It, so for example, on customs, before there was a three-way split, there was Taliban, there was the government taxing, and then there were pro-government actors who were taking bribes. 
that's consolidated now. So it's just taxing. The trade is down, but possibly more is more money is actually coming into the treasury because it's not being split three ways. And the Taliban, for all their faults, are less corrupt than the, the you know the horrors of the of the the Karzai and the Ghani administrations, which shocked Afghans in the early years of two early two thousands. The Taliban didn't have a political program. They didn't have an economic program. They are a military organization dedicated to jihad. And we saw that in the areas under their control, they would appoint commanders to civilian roles with very few exceptions. I mean, the judges would be an exception where they had causes rather than, but they might also be commanders as well. But they, you know, they had some sort of specialism. In the 90s, you had the same situation where, you know, you'd go to the Ministry of Education or health and the commander the the minister was also a frontline battle commander he'd be at the front line was part-time ministry and we, we see the same things now of course poor taliban they don't have a war to fight anymore they've got to like govern this country and I mean, they're mainly mullahs with very few exceptions we've got one of them you know one of the negotiators in doha is now in charge of mining we had someone in, in higher education the allegations were that he was illiterate i don't know if that's correct or not but it's that sort of you know disconnect between what they're doing it, it was the same in 2001 problem now is that a lot of the technocrats left because of the mass evacuation that the west decided to embark on in august has taken away you know a lot of a lot of expertise from the country thank you ibrahim did you want to add anything on that I do. I want to take this opportunity to ask my own question to Kate. You were talking about the various ministries of education, and you mentioned corruption. An issue I'm looking at in Iraq, and I've been wondering about this in Afghanistan, is the various ministries dealing with environmental issues, water resources, and wondering how the Taliban emergence would affect those various ministries, particularly the delivery of, well, governance, the delivery of water, management of water. How, how would climate change affect Afghanistan? The, these are kind of long-term issues I'm yeah. concerned about. Well, we, we're in the middle of a severe drought last year and predictions are for this year. Afghanistan's always had sort of regular droughts, maybe every 20, 30 years has been a bad one. Uh, the, the predictions are that by the end of this decade, it, they'll be annual. And one of the problems, of course, now that there are so, as in Yemen, there's, there's ways of getting the water from the aquifers now that mean there's overusage of uh, certainly the aquifers in Kabul, but also they're being used for um, opium production, for example, in, in a lot of the south. There's been a greening of the desert that is not sustainable given the precipitation. Glaciers are melting and they're really important for having a steady flow of irrigation water in the springtime. It's horrible. It's really horrible. And, you know, one of the desperate things, I, I actually went to the central area of Balmian uh, to look at uh, drought conditions two years ago. And on the last day, one of, one of the people I worked with, his cousin is a glacier expert. And, uh, and there's various other people. We asked one of the local environmental NGOs to, to just gather a, a group of people together on our last night. And in this room, in the middle of no, you know, Balmian is in, in the middle of, it's all right, it's a little city but it's really in the middle of nowhere. Everyone at the table had a PhD, often from Germany or Japan or outside, and they all had their feet in the soil. They were sons of farmers or they had land or they understood. There were soil experts, water experts, um, environmental experts, glacier experts, and they all, they came not only with sort of academic expertise, but technical expertise. What can we do? And I asked them, you know, this is, are you the worst affected in the country? And I'm expecting them to say, yes, yes, we're really poorly off. And they say, good Lord, no, we've got the watershed of the main peaks running through the middle of Afghanistan. We can do things, we have solutions, but we do need help to sort of, to do it. So the, the, you know, the solutions are there at that point, there wasn't really much interest in funding anti-global warming measures. And now of course it's off the table because it's not humanitarian. So. Goodness knows what I and I don't even know. I should follow up what's happened to those people. The, the, all those people who were, you know, amazing experts in their field. And as for the Taliban, they are replacing the experts with mullahs. They've replaced the directors of departments with mullahs. Some of the old old 
directors were corrupt, but others were young, technically able people. They maybe you know kept on as advisors, but the political power is going back to the going back to the Taliban. Thank you. Well, we'll now move to questions coming in from from you in the audience, and and can I encourage you if you do have a question or a comment, uh, please do put it in the Q and A box, and we're we're happy to we'll relay it to our speakers. So we have a question coming in from Anton Dabreu. I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly, Anton. And Anton's question is, what did the Americans expect, and that's in, in capital letters from Doha, and to what extent did it appear the Taliban negotiators had conflicting intentions? I don't know who wants to have a go at that first. Did you want to go, Ibrahim, first? No, okay, please. I defer to you. Yeah, we had this fantasy peace process in Doha. Goodness knows what the Americans were, were thinking. I mean, look at the Soviets. I mean, they spent years before they, they withdrew building up the Dr. Najib government to withstand the Mujahideen. What did the Americans do? They legitimized the Taliban. They undermined the Kabul government and the Afghan armed forces. They decided to talk to the Taliban independently you know, to the exclusion of the Afghan government. They came up with this deal that gave the Taliban pretty well everything they wanted, which was the, the withdrawal of their main most dangerous enemy from the battlefield, which was the American Special Forces and Air Force then. But worse than that, they did things like they promised that the Afghan government would, would release 5,000 prisoners. They, they forced them to do that. They, you know, old Mike Pompeo, the old Secretary of State, said, we'll withhold $1 billion of aid if you don't release them. The last year, they insisted that the, the Afghan forces have a, a, a defensive mode. So they weren't actually fighting the Taliban. The Taliban were busy consolidating areas, taking territory that whole last year. And then they left unconditionally. And, and the, the deal hadn't even, you know, made the Taliban, even on things like Al-Qaeda, core, what would you think of as core US interests, Al-Qaeda and the other foreign jihadist groups, the weakest the weakest of concessions the Taliban made. It looked like the Americans were cutting and running. That's what the Taliban assumed they were doing. That's what they were doing. Both Trump and Biden did that. And they absolutely undermined the, the Republic. It was not inevitable that it fell. I know it looks like that now, but it wasn't inevitable. There were, you know, really serious undermining by the Americans, also bad leadership by Ashraf Ghani and this sort of unwillingness to look reality in the face, including on things like the rent coming in that might be disappearing. So I, I mean, the Americans had a fantasy project that they got everyone involved with. All our governments just joined in. Various research institutes were doing research on the post-peace, as they called it, i.e. when the Taliban and the Afghan government were supposedly going to make peace. Meanwhile, we were asking the Taliban, I was asking the Americans, what's your plan B? What are you going to do if the, Ameri if the Taliban are, are being deceitful and actually want to go for military victory? Nothing, no answer. There was no plan B. And it was pretty clear from what, you know, what we were hearing from the Taliban on the ground and in Pakistan, where the leadership was based, that negotiations were there, their plan B and military victory was their plan A, which is what turned out to be the case. So, I, I mean, I think there's blame on all sides, the Taliban for choosing war in a drought year, in the middle of a pandemic. I mean, the suffering they inflicted has been horrible. The Ashraf Ghani government for being weak and feckless and undermining itself and the Americans. So you can tell that I'm still quite worked up about this. Back to you, Michael. <laughs> Thank you. Another question, Ibrahim, you didn't want to mention, you didn't want to come in on that particularly, no. Okay, the next question comes from Iftikhar Malik, and Iftikhar asks, retrospectively, can we say that the US-led alliance chose a wrong enemy in 2001 and persisted with it? I'm pointing at an alienated and targeted Pashtun popul populace that happened to be land-based peasantry. Both these factors largely anchored the Taliban. I did raise this areas in, in study even before the Doha talks, and Iftikhar apologizes for plugging it. No problem at all, but we're happy to plug that as well. So any, any of you like to take that question? I'll start with a may. If there was, again, going back to history, if there were two pivots, in other words, was the rise of the Taliban inevitable? And as kind of a historian, 
I always have to argue, where were the key pivots that would have made a difference? Uh, number one would be the U.S. loss of interest in Afghanistan after 1989, the international community's loss of interest. In terms of the interest in Afghanistan was getting the Soviets to withdraw the minute that happened. In terms of reconstruction, encouraging political settlements, there was no interest whatsoever. And it's in that vacuum in which the Afghan civil war began and which the Taliban was able to emerge. The other key was in 2001, I think in a sense of victor's justice, the failure to engage the defeated elements of the Taliban in a post 2001 order. It was the same mistake made in Iraq, the failure to engage at least some elements of the Ba'ath, not necessarily the higher elements, but these kind of, this lustration, if you will, this broad swath of saying anyone affiliated with the Taliban or anyone affiliated with the Pushkin majority, affiliated with the Taliban, and the same went with Iraq, anyone affiliated with the Ba'ath, but eventually became this large Arab Sunni purge. It led to disasters in both states. And I think to Iftikhar, that, that gives your answer. It was right immediately after 2001, when the Taliban were defeated, uh, when they had more or less been um, disbanded militarily in both Iraq and Afghanistan. I think both the defeated saw no future in the American system and thus took up arms. And I think those are the two key junctures in both states. Could I add to that? I mean, the extraordinary thing about 2001 was it was basically a welcome in intervention. And this was, it was a sea change. The Taliban were not just defeated militarily, but psychologically. No one had come to their aid apart from a few Pakistanis. And they collapsed. People welcomed the foreigners. And that was partly because they'd had, you know, this, this, was, this marked the end of the civil war. The Taliban went home in peace. Some of them skipped across the border. Some of them reached out to people in the, in the new regime to try and get security guarantees, which is typical for what you do at the end of an Afghan war. And they were double-crossed. You know, you had people turning up to meetings and they, the CIA would swoop down and arrest them. You had the people who took power after 2001. They used the Americans, they used their new position to persecute their enemies. And Often this was on a tribal or a factional basis. Often, you know, in the, in the Pashtun South, it was often tribal, often factional. The new, the, the, the first governor of Kandahar, for example, he put, put his um, enemies in prison. He confiscated land. He, he murdered people. There was torture. And the Americans were willing allies. They, you know, they had this practice of giving money for intelligence. Then they also had a fantasy they talked about hunting down the remnants of the Taliban and Al-Qaeda that did not exist. This was the thing, the Taliban did not exist as a fighting force, the, the insurgency came later. And by carrying out mass arbitrary arrests, using torture, stripping men in public in front of their families, using dogs in people's houses, you know, trampling on people's dignity, sending you know, 200 Afghans off to Guantanamo, more in Bagram, who knows how many forward bases, they sparked the insurgency. And we see that again and again, you look at the map of Afghanistan where the insurgency took off, people didn't want a new jihad. You know, there were a few Taliban who came around trying to get jihad and people said, well, just go away. We want this to work, we try and make this work, but there was persecution, there was corruption, and there was sort of the people who took power behaved very, very badly. So, for example, one district in just to the southwest of Kabul, people told me, look, we really tried. We kept sending delegations to Kabul. See, Karzai, we want a different police chief. He is looting our shops. He's looting our houses. Please get rid of him. Nothing happened. Five years later, the Taliban came and they piggybacked off what was actually originally popular resistance. And... Then, of course, the, the Americans started dealing with an actual insurgency and they did really badly. They set up an army that oh, I won't go into it, but this was not inevitable. It was bad behavior by the Americans, bad behavior by the various Afghans who had won power. And, and you know, shame on, on our governments, or our government, Michael and me, um, that we went along with that, because how could we go along with a, you know, a system that was sending people to Guantanamo and torturing people in, in black sites. How did the British government go along with that? It, it's a question that 
I don't think London has answered, but certainly the, the Nordic countries have come back saying, what on earth were we doing in that? And we see that, you know, we see the fruits of that now. The one thing I would say is that the Taliban are not doing much better. And traditionally in Afghanistan, if you want a peaceful end to a conflict, you treat the vanquished with dignity. They come and they give you loyalty. You give them back their weapons even. That's how you did, that's the proper way you deal with the end of a war. You don't go and, you know, kill them or try and take their land. So, uh, you know, the Americans, and again, as in, as with the, the peace treaty, it was a fantasy war they started fighting that turned into a, an actual war. Thank you, Kate. We have time for one last question, and that comes from Brent Spillner. And Brent asks, what do you think might have been an effective plan B? Were there realistic alternatives offering more competence and less corruption than the Ghani government? Was there ever truly possibility of balancing the Taliban in a broader coalition government? And what level of continued foreign support would have been necessary to prevent state collapse? And how might Western or Arab governments have been persuaded to fund it? <laughs> yeah, so yes, of course. Of course there were alternatives. I mean, it's a pretty sick, dysfunctional system that was set up and the the rentier state theory makes sense of why it was so difficult to get democratic elections or, or anti-corruption or sort out the government there were absolutely honorable brave people within the government trying to sort it out trying to clean it up they came under death threats from the people making money they weren't supported but they, obviously they weren't supported by Karzai because he was up to his neck in corruption Ghani certainly there was a lot of corruption around him as well he did not give political leadership or protection to people and the donors were you know they knew what was going on and they they, they funded anyway so they were I think they were also culpable and on the ground, there were a lot of people on the ground who wanted peace, including among the Taliban. But this top-down approach that the Americans took, where they thought, again, they liked working with strong men, as they did in 2001. They wanted to work with the Taliban leadership, the men who were most closely allied with Pakistan and the Pakistani intelligence, the people with the least skin in the game. And there are, you know, there are sort of, there were obviously people who, among the Taliban on the ground who wanted that jihad to win, they wanted victory in Kabul. There were many, particularly the older ones, who thought, oh, it's a disaster. You know, we have to live here. And the, the, their fear, I think, was not so much military victory as, as ongoing civil war. There was definitely grounds for doing local peace deals. And, you know, the Americans didn't want them. And, and it's a subject that I think will come up more in the, in the future. There were earlier peace deals on the ground in Helmand and elsewhere that the Americans sabotaged. So remember the Eid, remember the Eid in 2018, maybe people don't remember it, Eid al-Fitr, there was a three-day ceasefire, unbelievable. People went home to their villages for the first time from the cities. They hadn't been able to go for years because of the war. Taliban came into the cities. They sat down with the governors. They sat down with the, with the Afghan army. You know, there's pictures of Taliban eating ice cream, looking um, amazed, looking at the city. This was the, the strength of the Afghan people, both Taliban and, and government people, that was just not, it was just not leveraged by anyone. And we had this fantasy peace process that, that you know, ended in, well, the Taliban victory and the defeat of the Republic. Thank you, Ibrahim. Did you want to add anything? That's yeah. a very powerful, uh, powerful words to end on. Yeah. Yes. Well, I mean, thank, thank you, Kate. That would be Sorry. the strength going forward that you would have, you know, better commanders in control who can work with local people and get the girls' schools open, for example. It's happening in, in small ways, but you you have to come back. I think you have to come back to the resilient, not the resilience is a horrible word, but the the strengths that are there in communities in Afghanistan. Thank you very much, Kate. And thank you both to you and Ibrahim. I've watched a lot of coverage and read a lot of things about what's happened in Afghanistan since August. But in the last hour, quite honestly, I feel I've learned way more and understand things a bit better than having watched all the coverage on television, all the various things I've read in the newspaper. And I'm sure that's the same for everybody else. But thank you very much indeed for taking time to join us and to do this seminar. And also linking into the Middle East. Ibrahim, you illustrated how much it is very much linked to the Middle East and is part of the Middle East in all sorts of in all sorts of ways. And thank you to Kate for just showing how really the economics, I should probably add that uh, many, many moons ago, 
Both Kate and I studied political economy uh, of the Middle East at uh, Exeter University. And you can see which of us uh, obviously learned was a bit the better student of that from today's presentation. But thank you very much for both of you. And thank you all of you for joining us. And please do join us again on our next webinar. But thank you very much, Ibrahim. Thank you very much, Kate. Good night. My pleasure. Thank you.